This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. Today's story is about phrenology. German physician and neuroanatomist Franz Joseph Gall was the first to lecture on what he called organology, which was the idea that different mental faculties could be found in different organs or regions of the brain. The method by which one could read the skull's shape to understand an individual's organs he called cranioscopy. It was Gall's partner, Johann Kasper Spurzheim, who named the field phrenology and would bring it to the U.S., where it would enjoy its greatest success. Spurzheim attended a public lecture by Gall in Austria in 1800, and Gall hired him first as his assistant. By 1804, they were full-time research partners. In 1805, they left Austria, where their ideas had been deemed heretical by church authorities. After falling out between Gall and Spurzheim, Spurzheim continued to tour and lecture throughout Europe, popularizing phrenology. In 1832, he made his first and only trip to the United States, where he toured around the country, lecturing for six months before dying of typhoid in Boston. The Boston Phrenological Society was founded on the day of Spurzheim's funeral to honor and remember his contribution to phrenology, and they displayed Spurzheim's skull in their collection. After the Boston Phrenological Society folded, the skull was donated to the Warren Anatomical Museum, housed within Harvard Medical School's Countway Library of Medicine, where it is still displayed. In the U.S., the chief promoters of phrenology were Orson Squire Fowler and his younger brother, Lorenzo Niles Fowler. Together, they opened a phrenological office in New York City, which became known as the Phrenological Cabinet, where they conducted readings of visitor skulls and also displayed phrenological portraits. The Fowlers lectured and wrote extensively. Orson edited and published the American Phrenological Journal and Miscellany from 1838 to 1842. The journal itself remained in print until 1911. By the 1840s, phrenology had been largely discredited as a scientific theory, following Jean-Pierre Florent's experiments on the brains of pigeons, which demonstrated that cutting away parts of the brain did not correspond with the loss of the mental faculties that phrenology would predict. After the scientific discrediting, several of the phrenological societies folded, including the Boston Phrenological Society. However, the practical phrenology of folks like the Fowlers was still going strong. 
many Americans at the time sat for readings, including Clara Barton, Reverend Henry Ward Beecher, Horace Greeley, Brigham Young, and P.T. Barnum. Authors Walt Whitman and Edgar Allan Poe incorporated phrenological concepts into their writing. Practical phrenologists encourage Americans to know thyself, which they could do by paying the Fowlers or other practical phrenologists for a reading. The readings included notes or charts instructing the clients how to make best use of their natural propensities. In Lorenzo Fowler's reading of Emily Sawyer, he concluded a 13-page analysis by saying, quote, Cultivate as much as you can the organs marked smallest in your chart, and properly guide and exercise the stronger ones, and thus produce a harmony of mental and physical action. Parents sought readings for their children, and educators and reformers like Horace Mann latched on to the theory of phrenology, drawn in by the idea of perfectibility. From the very beginning of phrenology, the prison had been used as a research site for both the reading of skulls of live criminals and a place for phrenologists to obtain cadavers to study the skulls of those executed for their crimes. For the Fowlers, the prison was also a site for reform. They and other practical phrenologists argued for the elimination of capital punishment and the reform of prisons to include re-education instead of punishment. Despite the reform impulse of phrenologists, phrenology was also used as a scientific basis to justify racism and gender stereotyping. American phrenologists were sympathetic to liberal causes, including the anti-slavery movement, even while claiming the superiority of the European brain. By the early 20th century, phrenology had been largely discredited in the public, but some of the concepts of phrenology, including propensities and physical localization in the brain of different characteristics, have persisted. To help us understand more about the history of phrenology in the United States, I'm joined now by Courtney Thompson, Assistant Professor of History at Mississippi State University and author of the February 2021 book, An Organ of Murder, Crime, Violence, and Phrenology in 19th Century America. Hi, Courtney. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi. Thanks so much for having me, Kelly. Yes. So I inadvertently created this uh, month of 19th century episodes. Uh, Wonderful. So this is, I think, sort of the, the perfect end to the 19th century I want to start by asking you just how you got interested in phrenology, how you decided to start writing about it, which maybe you regret a little bit at this point, because I'm sure you're talking about it a ton, you know, uh-huh. but, but what got you into this as a, a, a subject? Oh, boy, there, there are about seven different ways I could answer that question, because as with all things, I think that our, our, our work, our research tends to demonstrate or represent convergences, right? Just lots of little choices you made along the way, and somehow you end up with a project. When I was an undergrad, I never intended to be a historian of science and medicine at all, but I took a course with Anne Harrington, that uh, she is this wonderful historian of psychiatry, mental illness, um, who also her first book has a lot to say about chronology as well. 
So maybe that was the first thing. Uh, when I was a grad student, so the book the book comes out of my dissertation research, of course. And when I was a graduate student, I really wanted to do something on the history of mental illness. Originally, I thought I was going to be writing about French asylums. I went to France for a summer to do prospectus research, and that didn't pan out. And I scrambled. I was like, oh, gosh, if I can't do that project, what am I going to do? And I was like, okay, brains, brains, brains <laughs> in the 19th century. I like brains in the 19th century. Okay, I want to do something on brains in the 19th century. And I spent a lot of time at the Beinecke, which is a, a research library at Yale, which was my graduate institution. And um, I noticed if you want to write about brains in the 19th century, you run into phrenology pretty quickly. It's, it's kind of hard to avoid. And I, I really resisted. I didn't want to write a book on phrenology. There are parts of me that, that really regret it because now I'm the phrenology chick, which isn't exactly how I wanted to brand myself. But I, because I, I didn't think that there was going to be anything new to say. Um, and what I realized pretty quickly is that I started to read all these primary sources about brains and minds and started reading all this phrenology is that the criminal just kept popping up. They were always talking about criminals. They were always obsessed with criminals, especially murderers. And I thought, well, there's something interesting going on there. Um, and uh, so it wasn't it wasn't the project I thought I was going to write. It wasn't the first three projects <laughs> I thought I was going to write. I think it's a really good exercise in how finding a dissertation project can work. But it was fun in a lot of ways. Uh, I do, again, I think... Uh, I didn't want to be the phrenology chick, but here I am. So <laughs> now I'm the phrenology chick, at least until my next book comes out. Yeah, there are worse things to be, I think. <laughs> I, you know what? I, there really are. At least it's interesting. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's, it, it does require some explanation if you're talking to non-academics, but it's a, it's a weird science and weird science always makes for good conversations, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you mentioned reading primary sources. What were the kinds of sources that you were looking at in this project. And uh, we'll talk more about this, but you talked mm -hmm. some about sort of elite phrenology and then mm -hmm. practical phrenology. And so I imagine that the sources are somewhat different than as you're sort of switching gears and, and looking at the more practical. Yeah, sure. So when I started out, I was mostly reading scientific and medical texts of the, or a little bit of the late 18th, actually, in early 19th century. So where I started was in this world of sort of intellectual history with these, these elites, this very top-down sort of approach, reading what scientists and physicians had to say about phrenology, the brain and the mind, a lot of periodicals, there were a lot of phrenological periodicals in this period um, that were not unlike other scientific journals or medical journals of the day. In fact, they, they also cross-published a lot, so you'd see medical journals would publish phrenological texts, phrenological journals would publish from, you know, borrowing from other scientific texts. So I spent a lot of time with that kind of material. Um, but I didn't just want to tell a story about men with degrees, white men with degrees and what they thought about science, in part because that's not the whole story of phrenology. Phrenology is very well known for being a prolific popular science, especially in mid-century America. So then I also started looking at uh, the records and papers and publications of what were known as practical phrenologists. These were people who, you know, the sort of stereotype of men and women who, who read heads for a fee. There was a really robust set of, of publications coming out of New York City in particular with the Fowler brothers, um, writing almanacs, writing uh, magazines for the, the public, writing books for mothers for raising their children. 
And then, of course, I did spend time in archives looking at, um, there's a lot of manuscript sources about phrenology. The problem with that is they tend to be little bits and pieces scattered all over the country rather than huge repositories. So it's a very different kind of project. A lot of manuscript phrenological readings, so the actual records of what they were reading in heads, posters, playbills, ephemera, objects. There's some great collections of phrenological busts, especially held at the Countway at Harvard. And then the challenge with manuscripts, uh, which which was frustrating, is if phrenology is sort of scattered everywhere, so it's kind of hard to track down. Writings about phrenology and crime were it was it was very much a needle in a haystack. So eventually, I did also turn to legal documents, court records, what I could find with the help from uh, legal librarians and um, other things in in that sort of realm. So I, I cast a really big net. I also make use of some some plays, short stories, fiction, wherever I could find that connection between phrenology and crime, I I just went for it. So I I was mostly trained as a social historian and my next book is going to be very social history, but this book was, it was very much a, anything I can grab, I'm going to grab it (laughs) and I'm going to stick it in. So there's, there's visual culture, material culture, there's some letters and and diaries and and medical, I I don't even know how to categorize my method. My method was (laughs) whatever works and whatever will stick. And I just, I just sort of went for it. The visual culture pieces are fantastic. I love all the yeah. sort of diagrams and, and oh, yeah. posters and things. Uh, so I, I do hope uh, people will look at your book, not just read it, but it's look so at great. it because it's I'm so a, fun. I'm a visual culture person. I really am. I, I have a, a, an art background. And so anytime I can talk about an image or use an image, I will. Picking out the images for the book were really fun. And some of them are just so rich and fantastic. When when I'm telling people about the book, I'm always like, it's a short book and there's lots of pictures. So, you know, if that if that's a selling point uh, for anyone out there, I, I do encourage <laughs> you to look at the pictures because there's some good ones. In there. Yeah, they really are. So I think when I, so prior to reading your book, I think when I thought about uh, phrenology, I was not thinking at all about this sort of elite piece of it. You know, to me, it was like, yeah, people reading heads and, and maybe they were quacks and charlatans and they were just trying to get money from people. And the idea that that you lay out so wonderfully about this being sort of a, a, a precursor a, to sort of criminal science and criminology is so fascinating. So can we sort of put this in context prior to phrenology that we don't have the kinds of tools that that criminal scientists and and police forces have now. There's certainly obviously no DNA, but there's not even things like fingerprinting and mm-hmm. things like that. So what what does uh, sort of criminal science, which doesn't exist, you know, what, what does that sort of look like prior to phrenology and how does phrenology sort of help the development into some of these other things that are, are, are really still being used? It's a great question. I mean, I would argue that phrenology really is the first criminal science or it's the first real attempt by scientists and, and the founders of phrenology, uh, especially Franz Josef Gall and Johann Gaspar Schwarzheim, who were uh, German anatomists and physicians, they really were scientists. They really were trained in, in the realms of science. They were taken very seriously, not by everybody, but certainly by uh, other elite scientists, enough for these, these ideas to be debated. What they offered was a scientific approach to crime. That wasn't the only thing that they offered, but they did offer a way to look at the mind and brain and behavior to identify um, a sort of link materially aspects of the brain or the skull, right, to criminal behaviors and criminal potential. 
um, which had really big implications for uh, disciplinary measures within prisons, within prison reform, and within how we think about criminals more generally. So what they were, were doing at a time when science was starting to think through the mind itself, right? I mean, psychiatry, there, there's plenty of people who've written about the development of psychiatry, but they're doing this at the same time as um, psychiatry is really starting to think more, or well, as psychiatry itself is even come, becoming a field, right? Because it, it, you know, madness wasn't really medicalized until the late 18th, early 19th century. So they are participating in this burgeoning desire to look at the mind as more than a philosophical problem, but as a material object that can be studied, that can be um, understood, interpreted, that can be localized, which is a big part of what they're participating in. And then the implications for that are where things get really interesting, right? So crime is one of the areas that phrenologists have a lot to say about, but it's certainly not the only one. Education uh, is another big thing that they have a lot to say about um, other aspects of reform eventually. And what I argue in the book, or one of the several arguments that I make in the book, is that a lot of the sort of birth of criminology, and, and those of you listening didn't see my my, my air quotes <laughs> with my fingers, but um, the so-called birth of criminology that appears at the end of the, the century, whether you date it to the innovations of Cesare Lombroso in the 1870s and 1880s with his theories of the born criminal, or the innovations of Alphonse Bertillon and Francis Galton with practices like um, mugshots and uh, hand, uh, handwriting analysis and Bertillonage, which is the anthropometric measurement of the, the body. Um, all of these things, certain techniques, certain theories were presaged by phrenologists, were proposed by phrenologists. And that lineage definitely got forgotten. Um, but if we want to call those practices the first criminal sciences, then we have to recognize that they owe an intellectual, an intellectual and a practical debt to what phrenologists were doing half a century earlier. Um, which is not to say, of course, that phrenology wasn't building on other practices and other sciences. But if the 19th century was the century where the so-called dangerous classes and the criminal mind come to be seen as objects of scientific interest, then we have to give phrenologists credit for seeing the potential, right, of, of building expertise and authority, of bolstering up their science by pointing at one of the most intransigent social problems, the criminal, and saying, we can science that away, <laughs> essentially. Um, and, and, and they were right, you know, when Alphonse Bertillon comes along with his, his system of, of identification, Bertillon was a French a French policeman. He had no scientific training whatsoever, but he basically used the veneer of science, of measurement, of statistics, um, of uh, instrumentation to give his system this scientific veneer that was very persuasive and led it to be adopted throughout Europe, the United States, through the colonies, lasting well into the early decades of the 20th century. So phrenology basically was a test run for taking this social issue, that of crime, and turning it into a scientific, an object of scientific study, and potentially an object of scientific um, problem solving. 
Yeah. So I think the other thing that I just never realized about phrenology was the idea that, um, that reformists could use it, that it, you know, to me, it was, uh, I've always sort of looked at it as like, well, it's just deterministic. It just says like, you bad head can't ever be better. You know, and the idea that you could use this in reforming prisons in education is just so fascinating. So how, how are they sort of using phrenology, thinking about phrenology in a way that could lead to reform? Yeah, so this is a, a really important aspect of both the history of phrenology and the historiography, because one of the, the key questions that's motivated the historiography since the 1970s has been, was phrenology a reform science? And, and to what extent? So part of this is dependent on where we are and when we are, mm-hmm. right? So um, uh, one of the founders of the science, Franz Joseph Gall, he, he, he had a very pessimistic view of humanity. He was very much more along the lines of you're born with it and, and you're stuck with it and uh, we can't fix you, right? Um, and then you had other, others come along, Spurzheim, Kuhn, and then especially the American phrenologists who saw a more utopian reformist potential. In the case of the Fowler brothers, who are the really famous mid-century American phrenologists or practical phrenologists, it, it's, it's actually sometimes unclear to what extent they saw pitching their, their wagon onto reform as, as a self-promotion mm. sort of tactic. It definitely, I, I get the sense that their politics were, were pretty, um, on, pretty much on the reformist side, that, that that's very authentic. But did they really think that phrenology could, could really play a role in all of these? Um, you know, it's, it's hard to say. You know, they were allied with such practices as the suffrage movement, uh, water cure, various kinds of criminal reform. Um, anti-capital punishment was a big, a big one of theirs. Um, but what exactly could phrenology do to reform people? Like, this is the question I get all the time, right? Like, so what exactly can you do? If your bumps are there, they're your bumps, right? Well, here's where it gets kind of, um, there's a lot of wishy-washiness, right? <laughs> to what extent is the mind fixed or the character fixed? And so the, you know, if you're born with it and the idea being, you know, you should have infants, you know, examined to see what their, their phrenology says, but also this idea of criminals, you can tell that they're criminals based on the size of their head. You know, that seems very determinist. Mm-hmm. Seems very materialistic, as you said, and materialism was was something that phrenologists really tried to avoid because charges of materialism were literally what got Gaul kicked out of Germany, essentially leading him to have to settle in. Like his his lectures were banned, his publications were banned. He got in a lot of trouble for the materialism. So materialism was always something phrenologists were running away from, and especially our reformist Americans like the Fowlers, you know materialism or determinism don't work too well if you're trying to sell this more utopian reformist point of view. So where they basically come down on is the sort of halfway point of saying, if you know what your organs are, what your potential is, or if you as a mother know what your child's organs are and potential or a schoolmaster, right? They had a lot to say about educational reform. Then you can basically guide yourself. Know thyself was their big sort of motto or your child towards an appropriate expression of these. So just because you had the organ of destructiveness, for example, that didn't mean you were necessarily going to become a murderer. If you were raised right within a Christian worldview and educated appropriately, and you know, if you were also white and middle class and, and uh, probably a man too, you know, while we're at it, you would probably just use that force of destructiveness to be a strong businessman, for example. So there was this 
real sort of sense of if you know yourself and if we know others, we can find ways to to direct them in the right path, to to bolster up where they might not have the right qualities of mind, um, to to restrain them where they might have too much of certain qualities of mind. And it was basically the same principle um, that we would apply on the miniature that they also thought could be applicable within uh, schools, prisons, other kinds of institutions, workhouses and asylums. Basically, these principles of education, guidance and direction along along preferred lines towards appropriate behavior, um, which which doesn't seem to have a lot to do with with the bumps at all. Right. Because because it wasn't. It was ultimately about um, the expression of self. Right. And how to train people to to be their best selves based on what their their essential potential was. But even with that, there's always lines. Right. You know, George Coombe was was the he was a Scottish phrenologist. He was actually trained as a lawyer. Um, and he had a lot to say about uh, prison discipline and prison reform. He he really believed he believed that prisons should be reformed. Um, prisoners could be better educated, and you know recidivists could be could be reformed. But he also basically left room to say, well, some people though were just born bad, and they're not reformable. And he was against capital punishment, so he wasn't saying we should kill them. That that's not good either. Um, but he did sort of suggest, as did other phrenologists, that sometimes. There's always going to be some of them, some of those criminals that you really just kind of have to put in jail and, and throw away the key, which, you know, so, you know, reform is to a point, I guess, is the way to think of it. Yeah. It's interesting because really that idea of sort of knowing thyself, I mean, that that continues as well, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we still do like psychological testing on kids to figure out like, what's the best method of teaching this child? You know, so I, I think that, uh, that that's interesting to think about it in that way that, that really the, the, this idea of these like bumps and stuff is, is sort of less important than, uh, in, in some ways, at least in this sort of practical phrenology. Yeah. It was, it was self-help, right. You know, I mean, they didn't like it when it was compared to things like horoscopes or astrology, right? Like that was, that was something that, that phrenologists of every stripe were really upset with. You didn't want to compare it to that, but at the same time, it's part of the same lineage, right? When you go on Buzzfeed and you take a quiz to see which (laughs) Disney princess you're most like, or for that matter, you take one of the MBTI tests, right? Mm -hmm. Um, what we're all participating in is, you know, we want to find out more about ourselves, whether we take it very seriously or not, right? Some people think something like MBTI is bunk, and some people take it really seriously in the same way that some people take their astrological signs very, very seriously. So you can imagine how in the 19th century, some people go to the phrenologists for fun as a lark. And they laugh about it. They write about it in their, their diary, basically saying, oh, it was dumb, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then some people would take it very seriously. They would they would um, bring their first child to the phrenologist to have them read. As soon as their next child was born, they'd bring that child to the phrenologist. Maybe they would um, carefully evaluate um, their, their phrenological guidance. They'd seek guidance on who to marry, what jobs to pursue. Right. Um, and then there was a lot, there's a lot of space between those two poles of just seeing it as completely funny and seeing it as completely serious. Um, my, my colleague and friend Carla Battelle writes a lot about, um, especially female phrenological users and how, um, women would test these practices, right? They would evaluate the the readings they had, they would read about it, they would test and they would experiment with it. So phrenology had a lot of room for, for interpretation, for play, for um, 
for experiment. And it just had a lot of room in general. It was a very malleable and flexible science, which I think is why it was able to move around so much in the 19th century, why it was adopted to so many purposes. For example, you would see it being used both to argue for both for and against the abolition of slavery, right? Um, basically the same information used to make both points, uh, which is which is kind of interesting. But it was also pretty malleable in the in the individual sense. You know, how seriously I took it, it you know, could be very self-directed. Um, there was a lot of room for, um, certainly for that exploration of self-knowledge, but in a way that allowed it to just sort of perpetuate because it was at always as useful as you wanted it to be. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about this tension that you you talk about with um, with prisons and criminals and how the phrenologists both argue that there should be reform and there shouldn't be capital punishment, but they also sort of rely on executions to get skulls to examine or prisoners to as sort of the, the heads that they need to go examine. Can you talk some about that, that tension and, and what that means in phrenology? Yeah, there's a lot of hypocrisy. As I think you can, you can. This is one of the most interesting uh, parts of doing the research for me is that I hit upon this very deep thread of virulent uh, anti-capital punishment writing, in particular. Um, so you have uh, you have figures like George Coombe writing about reforming the prison chronologically in the 1820s, and then he continues to write in this way throughout the decades. Um, but the Fowler brothers and the other sort of more reform-minded ones, they went whole hog uh, against the prison, but especially um, against capital punishment. Capital punishment was a big focus of phrenological, if we want to say activism, right, concern. This is where you see the prison reformers and the phrenologists literally talking to one another in the United States, publishing in one another's journals. So this was already an era of, of penal reform. Starting in the 1820s in the United States, this is the era where um, basically a lot of older systems of punishment, especially capital punishment and uh, sort of more violent forms of, of meted out justice, so whippings, floggings, that sort of thing, were being replaced by longer and longer prison stays. So prisons were getting bigger and they were becoming the sort of modern version of the penitentiary along different models. We, we basically, there are two, two competing models of what a prison should look like. So the prisons had this sense of, or the penitentiary rather, because that's, that's what was being developed, um, were organized along lines of reform in general. But one thing that hadn't disappeared yet was capital punishment. So there's this weird thing that happens in the 19th century with phrenologists. No matter whether we're talking about our really elite scientists, our um, phrenological enthusiasts, as I discussed, or our practical phrenologists, that the prison is this really useful site for them, as it has always been for medicine, right? I mean, going all the way back until the, the early modern period, um, prisons and especially executions were where you got bodies for dissection for medical students, right? So it's not like that was necessarily a new relationship. The prison has always served certain medical uses and uh, finding these, these useful bodies for dissection and for medical education in particular. What's different about this, though, is, is two things. First of all, the justification has nothing to do with education. Um, the use of bodies for dissection and medical education, that's, that has been an argument or that had been an argument for the utility of those bodies from the early modern period well through the 19th century, right? Um, so there was a, a sort of case to be made, right, for, for the, the utility and the practicality and whatnot. 
But the other thing is, um, you know, physicians weren't running around protesting prisons either, right? They weren't, they weren't saying anything about it. Um, they were, they were quietly going in and, and taking the bodies and also getting bodies from all sorts of other places, believe me, um, you know, (laughs) from workhouses and hospitals and from digging them out of the ground. Um, but these practical phrenologists basically were wearing their hypocrisy on their sleeve because they would write in the pages of their journals. Um, and it's, it's really quite ironic because they'll write on one page, basically these long screeds about how horrible it is to, 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 um, to hang a man. And then the very next page will be like, Oh, we got a new skull in our collection. This guy just got executed. Isn't that great? So, so it's, it's almost impossible not to see this tension through all of these phrenological writings because they needed this space. And it was not just for skulls and heads. They also went into these spaces and used them as demonstration sites. I mean, this is also where Gall first did some of his earliest research as he was developing his theories of chronology. He went into prisons and basically examined groups of murderers and thieves. So the organs of murder and theft, as they were originally called, were some of the earliest organs, uh, the earliest parts of the brain he was able to localize. So when mm. I say that, I, I would argue that phrenology is criminal science. You can say it is that right from the, the yeah. founding. Um, but especially in the United States, there's this real irony to it because Gaul wasn't saying anything about he didn't care. He really didn't care about them. <laughs> so but, yeah, but, execute him. <laughs> sure, right. You know, he, he didn't, he really didn't. I mean, politics, I mean, he gets involved in politics, but he doesn't want to, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. he's, he's not a, a motivated actor, I would say. Although he's other, other historians have written a lot more in detail about Gaul and his, his interests. But here you have, you know, people like the Fowler brothers who are putting it all out there. The American Phrenological Journal, which they edited, um, had a very wide, um, you know, they had thousands of subscribers who would read their journal, who would go to see them when they traveled to town to give a lecture. And they they really made reform a hallmark of what they were about. Um, It's on the first pages of when they took over the journal. They were like, reform is our project essentially. So there is a certain irony in them (laughs) protesting the prison um, and speaking so loudly to the principles of reform, especially against capital punishment. And then in the pages of the same journal, also proclaiming essentially how central these spaces were, because they go into prisons and demonstrate their skills, basically as tests of phrenology to to demonstrate how brilliant they were and also how truthful and scientific chronology was. And they also had a lot of heads, uh, plaster <laughs> skulls, death casts, but also literal, literal skulls that they sometimes took from the bodies. They don't address this though. I mean, you know, I, I would love to, if, if I could, I would love to sit them down and be like, so when you say you don't think that there should be capital, but like, what do you really mean? Because it sure seems like you would lose something, but um, if they were that self-reflective, they they did not reflect in in their writings, unfortunately. Yeah. So uh, in the epilogue to the book, you talk about sort of how some of this really continues. That you know we we haven't really left you know as much as we like to scoff and be like oh pseudoscience or phrenology that people are still looking for uh, the murder gene or they're they're using MRIs to to try to figure out can we figure out who's a criminal and you know can you talk some about the ways that it, that it hasn't really gone away and that you know as much as we might want to sort of say uh, this is a debunked science that people are still trying to to use some of the the concepts and language of phrenology. 
Yeah, I'd argue that it's it's still a very per- pervasive aspect of um, our modern day lives. I spend a lot of time. Um, I'll be honest; I actually really love crime dramas. I don't know. They're probably oh, I do to too. Yeah. I mean, but you know, they still. If you watch Criminal Minds or SVU, you know, they still use the language of of phrenology more often than you think, as well as the sense of determinism that some people were just born a certain way. And they, of course, they were going to behave this way. Even, even the notion of criminal insanity, which is something I talk a lot about in the book, um, is, is very much overwritten with phrenological conceptions of, of determinism, materialism, and the connection between mind, brain, and behavior. You know, it's funny because the, the epilogue is always one of those things that you could have I could have just keep writing it. Every few months, there's a new news story. Um, there's a new um, facial recognition technology that comes out or some terrible piece of research in, in air quotes um, is, is publishing and makes waves. We can use faces, facial shapes to determine whether somebody's trustworthy or not. Or this, this new facial recognition technology can tell if somebody's, uh, you know, dangerous before the act. And I'm like, what you're doing is phrenology. And in fact, if you look at the the images and the language of a lot of aspects of facial recognition technology, um, as well as some of the other things I've written about in the book, but also in a few recent public facing pieces, it's it's all just phrenology all over again. It's the image, it's the language, and it's the assumptions. Um, I would argue that we still very much live in a world that is shaped by phrenology. And this is why I actually, and I have a whole screen about this, but this is, this is actually why I'm so careful not to use the word pseudoscience in the book. It doesn't appear once in the book because um, I don't think pseudoscience is a useful term in general for historians of science, but especially I don't think it's useful for phrenology because first of all, it was a science that was taken very seriously. It was developed by scientists. It was taken seriously, at least initially. A lot of people adopted it and and allowed it to spread into various realms that we might not expect. But it's also not useful because um, pseudoscience implies something that we don't believe in. And I think that we do still believe in a lot of the essential tenets of phrenology. What concerns me, though, is the ways in which it spreads spreads implicitly rather than explicitly. So there was a recent case, uh, a New Yorker article that I've, I've written about this recently, um, where a journalist spoke to some of the insurrectionists at the Capitol insurrection. And one of them described himself as a phrenologist. He said he believed in phrenology. So this is striking for all sorts of reasons that I'm, I'm not going to get into. But when this happened, of course, every single person I knew started tweeting it at me. And they were like, <laughs> did you see this? Did you see this? Did you see this? Oh, my goodness. And of course, the rest of the blogosphere who does not know me was like, oh, my God, people are so stupid. They'll believe anything. Like, of course, he believes this, yada, yada. And the thing is, like, yes, that's very concerning that one of the insurrectionists declared himself to be a believer in phrenology. Like, yes, that that's bad. I'm not, I'm not going to pretend it's not. But I actually think it's much more concerning how we use and replicate phrenological language, imagery, and assumptions all the time without recognizing that that's what we're doing. So as much as I don't think it's great for people to call themselves phrenologists in the present day, um, I think that there's a lot of ways in which we use phrenology in our daily lives. And that's where things get very dangerous. I mean, I, I, I talk about this a little bit in the chapter on expert witnesses in court cases and, and criminal insanity, but the language that we still use that is written to our laws for interpreting um, whether somebody is is mentally 
sound and capable of, of committing a crime is, is still based, at least in part, on phrenological language from the 19th century. That, I think, is more troubling, ultimately, as is how we think about recidivists, um, whether some people are, are, just, are just natural criminals and, and can never be um, reformed. That those are also ideas that I think are best left in the past. So I find a lot of this very troubling in in ways that I did not expect to find when I started this project. Um, there are some things that I was looking for that I didn't find, uh, and but this is one of those things that nowadays it's it's hard for me to to read the news and to watch television because it's always there, and once you see it, you can't. It's like one of those magic eye things. It's it's just always present. You can't unsee it. So. Now you know that everyone listening, every time they see one of these things, is going to tweet at you, right? <laughs> yeah, no, everybody. Anytime you ever see, you ever read in a newspaper article or hear in a movie or a crime novel about somebody had a propensity to com- commit violence or propensity to murder or propensity to steal, or propensity to do anything bad, that is phrenology. And that the logic of that language is purely phrenological um, and really shapes how we think about bad behavior well into the present. Which I should mention, you know, allows us to basically put a lot of things on individuals and ignore structures, which is one of the reasons why I think it's pretty insidious. So how can people get your book? The book is available for sale through Rutgers University Press, as well as where many other fine books are sold. Um, It is uh, currently available in hard copy, soft copy, and in PDF. And if you reach out to me, I do have a, a code for... I think 30% off, although I'll have to dig it up. But if you send me an email or a DM on Twitter, I would be more than happy to share the code with you. Excellent. Uh, Yeah. I mean, anyone who, like me, reads a lot of murder mysteries set in the Victorian era, this is a great read. (laughs) There were lots of things that I was like, oh, that's how that developed. (laughs) Yeah. There's even some chronological detectives hiding in there. So there's there's a little detective story too. Is there anything else that you want to make sure we talk about? I would say that you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore C underscore Thompson, where I tweet a lot about history, currently about COVID in Mississippi, and also about my dog, Winnie, who is the most spoiled beagle who's ever lived. Um, So please follow me on Twitter if you want to hear more of my uh, rants about phrenology, about history of medicine, or you would like to see a very cute dog. (laughs) And who doesn't want to see a cute dog? I know, right? Excellent. I will, uh, in the show notes, link to your, your Twitter and, uh, and a link to the book so people can find that as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kelly. Yeah. Thank you, Courtney. This was a lot of fun. Uh, I've been looking forward to, uh, to this one. Uh, every subject I do is really fun, but uh, this one in particular, I was like, I want to know more. I want to know more about phrenology. <laughs> well, so good. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. You can find the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. MSW.